Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hello and welcome to another Arsecast Extra, as always, with James from Gunner Blog. James, goodly morning to you. Goodly morning to you too, Andrew. How you doing? I'm all right. Sunday morning, bit unusual to be recording on a Sunday morning, but needs must. Things yeah. are things are a foot or a hand or I don't know. You're you're busy this week. That's the whole point. So sure, sure. And of course, um, no Arsenal means we can just sort of record whenever we want. Monday, three a.m. Yeah, you know, looking forward that. to that one. Actually, yeah, it's going to be good. Set your alarm clocks. It's I'm going to stay awake. Uh, and take mushrooms or something as well, just to see how to see how that one goes. Hallucinating from lack of sleep and mushrooms, that'd be good. I actually went to an Arsenal game yesterday. I saw that via your, your Instagram, and I was actually going to ask you um, about this, because we had a message on our Discord mm. from Kupstakov, and he mm. said, if you're looking for some hashtag content... I was at the Women's Super League game against Man United tonight, and just before the end, there was a pitch invasion. But it was two kids, boys probably about 10 years old. It was very funny. None of the security guards knew what to do. No one wanted to lamp them, obviously. So they just ran around for a while while everybody cheered. One got caught, the other gave up. And he said, all my 10-year-old kid wanted to know was if they were going to be arrested or not. Never seen anything like it. And then there was a follow-up message this morning. So my question for the podcast is, what is the official club policy for under-18 pitch invasions? A talking to, a rap on the knuckles? My kid is weighing up the options. <laughs> <laughs> I wouldn't blame them because it does look fun. It sort of had the... Um it was reminiscent of when Santi Cazorla's kid was on the pitch at the end of the season once, you know? it was. They, they say uh, that the women's games have a, a different atmosphere, maybe a, a nicer, in some respects, atmosphere than sure. the men's games. And this was one of the nicer pitch invasions that you'll see. <laughs> um, so, yeah, if I was a kid watching that, I'd be thinking... That looks worth a go, to be honest with you. <laughs> I'm just trying to imagine two little 10-year-olds go, well, we, we go to the game and like, will we do it? Will we do it? Yeah. Steve, come on. Will we, will we? Yeah. All right. Yeah, let's do it. Let's do it. Like, they were probably planning it like all the way through the game. Exactly. Not that we're condoning pitch invasions, by by the way. Just, you know. just. But like, if you are going to do one, maybe get a child to do it for you. Um, it feels like you'll escape censure. You know? <laughs> and how was the game? I mean, a big crowd there again, unfortunate result, but a big crowd there to support the Arsenal women at the Emirates. You know, in a week when uh, Vinay, Chief Executive Vinay, was was talking about how pretty much all the Arsenal women games should be played at the Emirates Stadium, the home games, of course. Yeah, that's the ambition. I mean, how practical that would be, I don't know, with obviously the two, the fixtures are so often overlapping as they currently do. But it was amazing. The atmosphere was brilliant. Like, 
you know, the pubs uh, before the game were packed out. And it is a different crowd for sure. Like you see a lot more women, unsurprisingly, perhaps at the game than normally a lot more kids. Um, And it does make for a different atmosphere, but it makes for a really nice atmosphere. Uh, And the game itself was obviously a bit disappointing, the result. Um, I knew almost nothing about the Man United team going in. The one thing I had gleaned from my uh, pre-match research was that they're good at set pieces. Right. And so I looked great because before the game in the pub, you know, people say, oh, what do you think? And I was like, <laughs> well, look out for the set pieces from United. They're really strong on set pieces. Uh, that was like my one fact that I was holding on to. But lo and behold, set pieces were actually the key and, right, so. and proved the turning point in the last 10 minutes. So I look like I really know what I'm talking about, which was unusual and rare. Or also a gigantic jinx. Yes, you that know. could also be the case. There is that. There is that. I, I guess um, just to take a moment to say congrats to Tim Stillman, who won the best women's football content creator at the football uh, is it what what does football content, content awards? awards? I guess. I think. Um, FCAs, yeah. yeah, very uh, very well deserved. Obviously, uh, Tim and uh, you know, he's not a one man band by any means. Doing the stuff over on Arsbog News, there are contributors and helpers. So well done to them too for playing their part. Um, and uh, nice, uh, Tim posted a really nice letter that Vin I sent him as well. And congratulations. I don't know if you've seen that. It's on his uh, it's on his Twitter, but nice recognition for the work that he is doing to cover the Arsenal women's side and, and to sort of expand interest in in that particular team. As you can see, I'm not look obviously it's not the only reason there were forty thousand people in the Emirates, but uh, it has played a small part in that. So well done to Tim and the crew. Yeah, and well done to you, you know, for, for backing it and doing it. I mean, you know, a lot of people still aren't doing in depth women's coverage, mm. so Arsblog was, you know, one of the first in that respect. Yeah, um, fair. Well so done cool. all round. Well, well done, done all round. Let's all pat each other on the back. And me for knowing about the United set pieces. Uh, the set pieces. The set yeah. pieces. More back- That's been my contribution. <laughs> More back padding. Um, we talked about the uh, the mugs. and um, Oh, yes. Yeah? Yeah, the mugs. The Go mugs. On. And I did notice that there were some counterfeit mugs being sold on um, on Redbubble and other sites as well. So they obviously see when something is selling well and everyone just rips it off. So I did do a... a wow. Yeah, loads, loads of them. Um, but thankfully, they've been taken down, I think, apart from the ones that are on other sites, which I can't do anything about. But um, Redbubble were pretty good and pretty quick to take those down. And it's literally just people seeing, oh, what's selling? I don't know how they know whatever algorithms there are, if, it, if they get pushed onto the, the homepage or whatever. Um, but they did take them down pretty quickly. And as I said on Friday, so far we've raised over 5,000 euros, which is amazing. That is fantastic. It sure brilliant. is. Um, thank you for buying them, everyone. It's been very cool seeing pictures of these mugs appearing <laughs> across the globe. <laughs> it's great. Everyone's having their coffee or tea, or indeed I've seen people use them for stronger drinks than that. And that's the beauty of these these mugs. They're multi-purpose. We, we yeah. designed them to to fit almost any liquid you can think of, not just coffee and tea. Years in the laboratory, you know, perfecting this design. This is um, it. People have been asking for these mugs for a long time, but we've been behind the scenes beavering away, creating the perfect drinking receptacle. 
Uh, and lo and behold, there it is. There it is. That's why it's selling so well. You know, it's the the uh, the versatility of this mug. I think is just what's captured people. Yeah, most of the people buying it aren't even Arsenal fans. They they've never listened to the podcast. It's the pure practicality of these mugs. People can't get over the drinking experience. Well, yeah, it's, it's amazing. Plus, you get to see two bald guys on the on the side of it as well. You know, turn it one way, there's a bald guy with glasses. Turn it another way, there's just a bald guy. It's like, yeah. I mean, what more could you want? And who doesn't picture <laughs> drinking their hot drinks out of a bald man's head? You know, uh, there's probably a bald man we're going to have to talk to uh, talk about in a while. Um, sure, but we should talk about somebody with hair. I think okay. just to sort of balance it out. We don't want to go too bald too quickly on this because people will be they'll be so 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 upset uh, <laughs> about that. So let's talk about a man with hair. Okay, anyone in particular? I was thinking Edu. Because I would say he is, you know, he's got good hair. And I'd say because he's quite a, a dark hair chap, I'd say he's got, you know, a good covering of hair everywhere else on his body. Assuming, of course, you know, that he, he doesn't listen to podcasts, football podcasts in general, you know, to manicure his his bits. That's so, true. I mean, I imagine he is exceptionally groomed. He's very well put together, Edu. You know... When you meet him, you're like, he sort of looks like he's off the telly. He's got that sort of sheen to him, you know? Bit of the old, uh, what, who was the guy who was always really tanned? George Hamilton. Right, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, that him, vibe. yeah, bit of that going on with Edu. You know, that star quality. But he's got a, a new job. Yes. Um, promoted to sporting director from technical director. And... Yeah. They did mention this on the on the official Arsenal website where he now will take um I can't remember the the exact phrase but over arching responsibility for the academy I should have looked this up shouldn't I, I really? think it was overarching yeah and the academy was the sort of differential wasn't it it yeah. was like you know as well as his work with the men's, men's and women's, and women's team. football yeah overarching responsibility for all our academy activities so What's your understanding of what's going to be new for Edu in this role? And what does it mean, if anything, for Per Mertesacker, who is the, the head of the academy? Is this about sort of consolidating, um, you know, having a, a sort of, what's the word, a pecking order, a hierarchy, whatever it might be, at executive level? So, you know... Edu is the guy on top of everything, and then you have Per, and then you have Mikel Arteta, and you know—is that how it's working, or is there are there specific things about the academy that he's going to be doing? I don't think it's going to be too dramatic a difference. I think I might be wrong about this, and to be honest, I've not yet had the time to fully um, appraise the situation. Mm. But my gut about this, because there was a lot of story about, oh, is Edu going to get a new contract? and things like that. And I'm not sure that I ever have really believed that Edu has been on a fixed-term contract in the way a manager might be. Just because, from a purely practical standpoint, I can't see how you would put a technical director, someone charged with the long-term vision for the club, mm. on like a three-year deal. Sure. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, that uh, makes sense. It, it doesn't make any sense. I, I think you probably would have them as a permanent member of staff. And so effectively, 
I, I suspect what's happened here is basically a, a promotion in title and a pay rise. And yes, there is a change in responsibility in terms of we'll have a, an overarching role that will take in the academy. Um, but I think it's basically about putting Edu at the top of the tree. I don't think it's bad news for Per Mertzaka. I think it's more good news for Edu. That's how I see it anyway. Right, right. Uh-huh. Because there was talk of interest from other clubs, people yeah. sniffing around Edu because, um, you know, the work that he's done, I think, has been has been good. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we've had plenty of conversations about him here on, on this podcast. Um, but, yeah, I mean, do you think there was much in that? Do you think there were clubs looking at him? Is that the kind of classic, well, there's there's interest in this guy, so we better, you know, get him tied down? Or is it just more about consolidating the structures that are there right now because, you know, they're working and we still have some way to go, so you don't want any kind of upheaval while you're yeah. in this in this sort of process, if that makes sense. I guess so. I mean, I think Edu, you know, he's in a pretty powerful position right now because the recruitment work that's been done on the squad of late looks really impressive. And obviously the results are there in Arsenal standing in the league table. I'm sure there have been inquiries from elsewhere. You know, would he like to go and, and work on the continent or elsewhere? I, I have to say, I don't know why he would want to leave Arsenal at this point in time. You know, he, yeah, as we say, he's consolidated his position there. Things are going very well. He's got a good relationship with the manager. Mm. I guess only money would be the motivational factor there. Um, and I suspect he's probably cancelled that out by getting himself a, a bump in what he earns. Um, whether or not, you know, how serious that interest was from elsewhere. I mean, we didn't really see any names of clubs specifically attached to it, so it's difficult to say. Um, but, you know, he's 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 managed to turn the situation to his favour and can't really blame him. I mean, Arteta got his little promotion in terms of head coach to manager, and I don't know if that was accompanied by any sort of financial compensation, but may have been for Edu... Um, this feels like his equivalent to that. And it does feel like Arsenal are invested very heavily in that pairing of Edu and Arteta. Yeah. Maybe, maybe Mertzaka, you know, isn't quite seen on that level, but I mean, he's still completely in charge of all academy operations. It's probably just the case that, you know, Edu and Arteta, sorry, Edu and Mertzaka will have more direct dialogue and the decisions the academy makes will be made you know with the first team consulted and the first team in mind i think it's just about establishing that pathway from hale end to colney and then colney to the first team um and probably just means edu gets to sit in on more meetings and have more opinions but mm. I, I, if i wasn't if i was per attack i wouldn't be too perturbed by this i i do think per's ultimate ambition is to be a technical director himself one day. Um, and I think he's on record about that. Uh, so as long as Edu's at Arsenal, I think that will be difficult. And there's always the chance that someone offers him that possibility elsewhere. Mm. Um, but I think he's really enjoying, from everything I hear, his his role in the academy as it stands. So does that mean that the role of technical director at the football club is now gone and it has been replaced by sporting director or do we need a technical director as well as a sporting director? <laughs> I think it's gone. I think this is, I think it's where it's filed away wherever head coach is filed. Um, because if you think about it, 
Edu was the technical director with Rao Sanyei above him. And there was a lot of talk when Rao left of, you know, is Rao going to be directly replaced? Mm. And ultimately, Edu has proven to be that replacement, you know, with the support of Richard Garlick um, and, and with Edu Arteta stepping up as manager as well. And I think this is just a kind of consolidation of the existing positions. You know, functionally, mm. Edu is kind of already doing this job. Um and in much the same way that Arteta was kind of already doing a manager's job. So I don't think we'll see someone come in under Edu. Um, in fact, I think that would be quite counter to everything Edu has done to kind of consolidate his own position. So, yeah, I, I think this is probably our lot. I don't think there's going to be another big executive um, level sort of appointment on that side. Right. I might be wrong. So, this, is, this is mainly my perception rather than information. Information, sure, I get it. So what would you say, you know, because I was, you know, maybe a little bit skeptical of Edu at times. Mm -hmm. You know, I thought the, the closeness of him with Raul and Kia at times wasn't as positive as um, maybe it should have been or, or you know, it just made me a little uneasy at times. But I think clearly when it comes to recruitment, there have been improvements from an Arsenal perspective. Edu has played his part in that. Like he obviously did really good work with Gabriel Jesus and, you know, all the, the work he did to convince him that Arsenal was the place to be. I know there was that, that connection between Jesus and Mikel Arteta, but Edu, you know, as a fellow Brazilian, was um, talking to him for months and months and months and all of that kind of stuff. So, you know, he has played a part. And when we talk about the improvements at the club, I think you have to acknowledge that at executive level, things are better than they were. Mm -hmm. uh, Decision-making is better and everything else. But would you say there are still things that Edu has to prove, things that he can improve on in this role, you know, to, to really not turn people's uh, opinions around or anything like that? But, uh, you know, if you – I think all of us in everything that we do – would say that there's always room for improvement and always things that you can do better and things that you can learn from. So is there anything that you would highlight uh, going forward that, that, you know, if in 12 months' time we're having a conversation about Edu and you say, well, remember that thing? He's shown us that he can do that thing. I think player sales is mm. the main one. Um, I'm trying to think of deals we've done since Edu arrived at the club, players going out that have been decent. I mean... Uh, I think he was there, but just sort of getting his feet under the table when Alex Awobi was sold to Everton. I'm, I'm, I think I'm right about that. Um, and then other than that, you're looking at Joe Willocks in Newcastle, which was a very respectable fee. I think even Emmy Martinez, you know, that was a decent fee. That asked, Well, actually, it was a very good fee for a player who had barely played any first-team football at mm. that point in time. But beyond that, you know, there have been the high-profile cases of... Um, paying players off, letting players go for nothing or next to nothing. And Edu himself has kind of thrown down a gauntlet here. You know, in that big round table we did last summer, he said, you know, now the squad is in a position, uh, paraphrasing here, where, you know, we have put value into the squad. So any player you want to take from Arsenal, um, you know, mm. come and knock on the door. You're going to have to pay decent money and I think by and large that's true I mean one of the few players in the squad linked with the move away at the moment is Cedric Suarez that might not be the best 
case study for that particular <laughs> challenge, shall we share? Um, no. But there are other players in the squad whose future is in... in this, uh, you know, they're subject to some debate, shall we say, that I think Arsenal could reasonably look at and think, and Arsenal fans could look at and think, well, if they were to go... Mm. We, we should really get paid, you know. Um, and I think next summer, you know, I, I think people probably will start to leave this group. Not many, one or two here or there, perhaps on the fringes of it. And it, with Arsenal, Arsenal's general reputation improving um, and with the contractual and age situation of some of those players, we really need to see returns, I think on some of those investments. We have talked before, haven't we, about how perhaps the transfer fees for players are reflective in some way of your, not necessarily your position in the table, but your your competence almost as a football yeah. team, the way that Liverpool can sell these guys that have never played, but all of a sudden Bournemouth are, are paying, you know, 20 million for them. And that is because they're a team that operates at the top end of the table season after season after season. So it will be interesting to see if that's reflected in whatever sales we make maybe next summer. Yeah, I'd like to think so. I mean, you know, a squad player from Liverpool, as we've said many times, has cost, you know, 15 or 20 million at various points in the market. Mm. Um, It would be nice if we could say the same for Arsenal. So I think that's one of the big challenges for Edu and not just Edu, I think the entire sort of football administration at Arsenal to show that they can extract that value. Sure. Um, and then I think, I, I think there is a secondary one which comes back to Per and comes back to the academy, which is that we've had this incredible uh, influx of elite academy talent. You know, I'm thinking of Bukai Saka, Emil Smith-Rowe, you know, Eddie Nketiah is an academy player as well. Uh, there may be one or two more that have made their way into the squad. But it's been relatively... Um, well, how can I put it? it? There's not behind that. There doesn't appear to be a, a sort of queue of players uh, coming up into the first team. Sure. And because we've got such a young team, we don't really think or talk about it very much. Um you know, mm. if you look at the cup competitions, for example, the Europa League, uh, the League Cup, it's not like there's behind that generation a bunch of 18-year-olds uh, making the step. I mean, you, you know, Charlie Patino has been one uh, who's out on loan at the present point in time. There are a couple out on loan, you'd say, Brooke Norton Cuffey, and maybe that suggests we're taking a different strategy with those players. But I, I just think, you know, if Edu's role is going to encompass the academy too, we would like to see maybe one or two of these bright young academy talents making that step mm. into the first team. Because actually, you know, Smith Rowe, Saka, those guys made their initial breakthrough kind of under a previous management, you know? Sure. Well, actually, we, we, we have questions, obviously. Just because we're talking about this, we had a, um, an interesting question from Doror Nona. I think mm-hmm. Denoronha UK. It's difficult to say that. I thought it would be much easier to say. I'm struggling today with my words and my brain. But anyway, it's Sunday, Andrew. It is. Tr- it is Sunday. That is. Tr- that's the perfect excuse. Well, you'd normally be in church at this time. Correct. I haven't been to mass yet. <clears throat> anyway, um, he asks: 
How do Arsenal balance the talents coming through in the academy with new signings to challenge for the league? We seem to have so many exciting prospects, but the chance to win the league is too big and requires ready-made players. And I think this is a really interesting aspect of what you've just been talking about is, look, maybe it is easier to make your breakthrough as a young player in a team that isn't quite at the top of the game if that Mm -hmm. makes sense. Unless you're like an exceptional talent, it's much more difficult to break through when a a club is going through a transition period, if you want to call it that. And I think it's fair to say that, you know, over the last number of years under Arsene Wenger, under Unai Emery and under Mikel Arteta as well, there has been a sort of sense of, like this is the end of this particular era. Here's a new kind of bridge era, and that's not very good. Now we're moving on to something. So there's been sort of like an uncertainty, an instability, if you like, within the team itself, um, for all kinds of reasons that we know about, right? Um, but if you are sort of looking at competing for the title, and you're thinking, right, I've got a space in my squad, can I give it to this 18 year old? who potentially could become a really, really good player? Or do I go out and buy somebody, you know, that's a more expensive option, but who can come in straight away maybe and give us something that we need to help us achieve what we want to achieve? You know, that then changes the dynamic of the whole academy, doesn't it? Because you then, you have to send players on loan. At the same time, you have to be able to show them there's a pathway, into your into your first team because you know it'll be loan loan then I'm going somewhere else I, I guess that's demotivating so it it is going to be interesting to see how they they deal with that balance of we're good we're hopefully getting better the games are going to be more important but we still need to show you that there is a way from Hayland to London Colney if that makes sense yeah and I think it obviously the better we get the harder it will be to make yeah. that breakthrough I mean the question raises a really interesting point which is like was one of the benefits, <laughs> if it's a hard way to talk about it, but of Arsenal slipping into that funk of those kind of eighth place finishes that it almost afforded us the chance to blood some of these young players. You know, I, I don't mm. know, but would, you know, if we were riding high at the top of the league, would Bukayo Saka and Nemo Smith Rowe have got the minutes that they have got? Yeah. And how much have they benefited from that opportunity? I mean, Arsenal did hit a kind of... It, it's it's wrong to talk about rock bottom because, you know, in relative terms, Arsenal are fine. But they did hit a point where a reset was not only required, but sort of possible. And they had a window within which to do that and grant some of these young players opportunities they might not otherwise have done. Um, hopefully, we don't hit another reset point for a little while now. Yeah. So... It's going to be tricky, and I think, I think that the way to handle it and that will be that you know we'll see one or two exceptional individuals uh, bedded into the squad. I mean, right back's an interesting one. We've got great depth at right back at the present point in time. We've got uh, Ben White. We've got Tommy Asu. We do have Cedric behind them. If Cedric were to leave the club, you know, I'd say that's a case where. I wouldn't really want Arsenal to go and replace him directly in the transfer market when they have Brook Norton Cuffey, who 
is very, very highly thought of. You know, that sort of fringe role in the squad could be his way in. And if Arsenal go and buy a player in that position, what message does that send? What does that do to his pathway? Yeah. Um, and it's not like Cedric's playing a ton of minutes, to be honest, uh, at the present point in time. So, you know, Brooke Norton Cuffey might look at that and think, well, I'm still a pretty clear third choice there. But it is at least a potential opening. Um, and so if Cedric were to go, be it now or be it in the summer, I, I'd be a little bit surprised if Arsenal went out and bought another right back. Yeah, but I mean, the thing is, if Brooke Norton Cuffey has gone on loan last season and played regularly, he's gone on loan this season and played regularly, do you stagnate then if you just stay at Arsenal as nominal third choice to play a bit of, mm. you know, League Cup football? Because, you know, let's let's keep our glass, our goodly morning mug half full, if you like, with whatever liquid you want to put into it, it's quite possible that we're playing Champions League football next season. And that then changes the dynamic of your squad again. Um, so it's more difficult for these young guys to make a breakthrough. Look, it's, I guess, part and parcel of the job. And that's always been part of the the balancing act of of developing. But maybe the thing about our academy is that it should be a source of revenue, you know, if that doesn't sound too cynical, the reality is that most of the players who come through the academy are not going to make it at Arsenal. But it doesn't mean that you can't produce good footballers. It doesn't mean that you can't produce footballers who have some value in the transfer market. And if you're smart, I guess, and if you've got players who are... You know, some of the decisions I think will be quite tough, won't they? Like, this guy, we really like him. He could be good, but... He's got Ben White and Takahiro Tomiyasu ahead of him. Is yeah. he going to oust them? What's the best thing for the player? As much as we'd like to keep him, probably the best thing for this player is is to sell him so he can go and play regularly and have a career. So maybe the, 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 the thing to do or how you do it is you build in all these various clauses, sell-on clauses or whatever it might be, so that if a player really does um blossom you're not missing out completely um and you do get some financial reward for that well, you make a great point there yeah i mean we talk about selling players and we instantly think of the players that are currently in the first team squad you know on the fringes perhaps who might go but actually these young guys out on loan as you say might prove to be another very valuable revenue stream i mean you look at what uh say somebody like Jed Spence went for in the summer, he'd been uh, tearing it up in the championship. I mean, if you even if you drop down a division and have a good season, mm. you can catch the eye and you can become a bit of a money spinner for your parent club. Um, so, yeah, I, I, that that's a very good point and maybe that'll be the way to go. So then, again, to bring the conversation back to Edu, I think another area to judge him will be what does he, what do he, the loan manager, Ben Napper, Per Mertzak, the academy, what can they do to kind of raise the profile and the price tag of the players who are out on loan? Because, you know, by selecting the right club, by making sure they get the right sort of minutes, the right kind of opportunities, the right stage to shine, mm. we could create some real assets there. And that is something um, which Chelsea, for example, have done pretty effectively you know they've had a lot of players out on loan and they've kind of engendered their own value um through that so that'll be another area and i guess it's another way in which it makes sense for edu to have some academy involvement you know it's not just which of these players can mm. contribute to the first team but which of these players 
could be a, a valuable asset on the transfer market. All right. Well, look, we will wait and see how it goes for for our hairy friend, Edu. And uh, congratulations to him on his uh, his promotion. Now, maybe we have to go bald again a little bit. And, sure. um, again, I've already done it once, Andy. <laughs> and to great effect, sure. I have to say. The World Cup is starting today. Um, Qatar take on Ecuador. And this week, it's just football, football all the way. And of course, there have been many discussions about the World Cup, about where it's being held, about FIFA, all mm. of that kind of stuff. And I think yesterday, Gianni Infantino's um, speech, his remarks, really, I don't know if they opened people's eyes to FIFA or him or, or anything else, but... Like I, I watched the FIFA Uncovered documentary as I know you did, mm. and the inability of anybody at, at executive level at FIFA to take any responsibility for anything that happened at any time involving them, whether they were directly in charge of it or otherwise, is like, well, no, I, I didn't do anything. Uh, is amazing. But like I, I watched that Infantino speech yesterday, and I think he's probably worse than Set Blatter. Can I just ask, Andrew, how do you feel today? Do you feel Qatari? <laughs> do, do you feel Arab? Do you, do you feel gay this morning? Do you feel disabled or migrant worker? I mean, it was the most surreal thing I can remember seeing in a football context, that speech. Same. It was insane. Same. And I, I did like, uh, we had a, a shout out to Kleinfeld, who's on the arses, on the comment system on Arsblog, who said, Infantino's rant is hilarious. However, it's great to see a gay Arab African disabled Qatari migrant worker doing so well for himself. <laughs> you know, but I mean, it's just astonishing in, the, in, in how tone deaf it was, you know, the sort of like the bit about I was bullied because I had red hair at school. And I'm I'm sorry. Look, no bullying is okay, but to sort of try and say that because that happened to you, you know what it's like to be I don't know gay in a country where it's illegal, where it's criminalized, where you could be put in prison for being gay, for you know the various discriminations and racism that happens around this world, you know, to sit there and to sort of co-opt the experiences of, of these people, which is what I think, you know, was, was what was really annoying about this, um, was about this, you know, this particular speech that he gave, you know, I am Muslim, I am gay, I am Qatari. You're not, you can't be those things. And I get what you're trying to say in a way, but, you can empathize and you can understand and you can uh, want to make things better for people whose circumstances are more difficult. But this sort of, this arrogance to sort of say, I am all of those things. Yeah. You know, it's just. You it's, cannot co-opt uh, those positions, you know. No. And um, I think it's very. Yeah, I, I think it's very problematic to suggest that you can share in those struggles. Yeah. Um, oh, so yeah, I'm sorry. I know I live in Doha. I'm one of the highest paid executives 
in the world at an organization that that generates billions from a World Cup and five star lifestyle. You know, you saw in the FIFA Uncovered documentary, like all the stuff that goes on, like, oh, here's your FIFA Rolex just for coming to the FIFA conference. Mm -hmm. I mean, do we think that that is still going on? I'm pretty sure it is. You know, so to, to sort of be in this ivory tower and look down and say, I am all of you little people, I understand, but you know, I can do so from the luxury and comfort and safety, the safety of my penthouse apartment, you know, wherever it is in Doha that, that he lives, you know, mm -hmm. it's, it's unbelievable. It is. And I, I, I literally had watched the FIFA documentary the day before, <clears throat> which was quite the sort of, uh, starter to this uh, main course you know really it really um set the table as it were and left me feeling pretty uh what's the word pretty turned off by the whole thing yeah i mean i saw your tweet like you're not really one for um outbursts on no. twitter so to speak but you still gave it a fuck fifa yeah you know but which i i get because yeah, it's it's hard, isn't it? To this is a game that we all love, and you see these people who are using it for, for they're just milking football for as much as they can get out of it for themselves. That's exactly it. You know, I I really love football, and in fact, I would say I do love the World Cup, um, but I just think FIFA have obviously sort of created a kind of monopoly system, and they are effectively a. Well, they're two things. They're both a business and a political organization. And there's a lot of people who have historically and continue to use it to, mm. for their own ends, really, to generate power and money. And it's um, unfortunate. And it feels like they are trying to take possession of a game which ought to be quite a democratic thing you know it mm. feels like something that we all have a stake in and i know it's increasingly difficult to feel that way um but fifa are sort of the ultimate embodiment of that and yeah i mean the the whole system by which it, it, you know the thing is that what's tricky about fifa is that they're able to dress up a lot of their activities with sentiments that are sort of fundamentally quite noble. I mean, you know, they can talk about being an egalitarian organisation and the ambition of wanting to take the World Cup to Africa, which they obviously achieved. And, like, no-one's going to question any of those principles, I don't think. And even taking it, you know, to Qatar or uh, countries which you wouldn't think of necessarily as the first option or first choice for a World Cup, there is merit in that and there's progress that could or perhaps can sure. be made in those situations. Um, but it's everything that goes on around it and how those decisions arrived at, the mechanics of it, and the way in which individuals kind of leverage those positions for their own benefit, yeah. is, I think, deeply unpleasant. Um, and it's it should be one of the biggest conversation points at this World Cup. I mean, even even the thing about the beer tells a story, doesn't it? That they don't want beer in the stadiums. And we understand that there's a societal element to that because of, you know, uh, because of Qatar, yeah. which I, I completely get. But you can't have beer, James. You, 
the mm. guy who's bought the ticket for the game, who spent your money to go and stay in one of the fan parks. Did you see the video doing the rounds of the fan park? There's, you know, these, I haven't seen that. These actually. tents. I'll put a link to it in the in the show notes. Basically, you know, there's a. I think it's via the BBC. Um, he's done a report on it. He's talking to this French guy. French guy says, look at how much money I paid here, like three and a half thousand dollars. He said, this is incredibly expensive for me. I, I booked a hotel and he's been brought to one of these fan parks, which is essentially a tent with a zipper and a fan and a small bed. And he's like, this is, you know, this is not what I paid for. But you, you know, you've paid all this money and you've taken time off work and you've paid the money to go to, to Qatar and you've, you know, you cannot get a beer at the game if you want a beer. But up above, if you're in the hospitality boxes, if you're in the suites, if you're the corporate fan, that's fine. You mm. can get your drinks. You can get whatever you want. You know, so this sort of um, elitism that exists at the very top of FIFA where football fans are, you know, they talk about the football family and they talk about developing the game and they talk about all these kinds of things. And I've no doubt that there are things that FIFA does that are good and are beneficial to um, to people across the world and in football. But yeah. there is an elitism at the very top that is not reflective of the majority of people who who love football, who love the game at national level, club level, international level, whatever it might be. And the decisions that they make are at odds with the way many people think. And Infantino yesterday just just demonstrated how far removed he is from anything that might be considered normal or might be considered um, connected to genuine football fans and, and what they want from the game, you know? Um, yeah, it's just, I don't know. It, it does. It does leave me feeling pretty, well, sad actually. Because mm. as I say, I love the World Cup. I really do. I, I you know, I, on the show we often uh, disparage international football, and I think rightfully so. Um, a lot of the fixtures we see are sort of, you know, not particularly interesting or worth doing. But tour- international tournament football can be a really great thing, and I think for so many people, it's like a hugely formative experience i mean mm. you know we spoke about you was it 78 was the first world cup you remember i remember the 78 world cup final like um, yeah you know the the ticker tape and everything else exactly and like you know player performances at world cup i mean there's a brilliant a much uh i gather a much more uh positive <laughs> documentary about uh the original ronaldo um oh man that's great as an antidote to the fifa uncovered um and look there are elements of it that are pretty harrowing and everything else, but it is a great documentary. Yeah, it's the phenomenon, it's called. Um, yeah, so, yeah, and so, you know, and, and his reputation was kind of forged at World Cups. His story really is the story of two World Cups of, you know, one that ended in uh, defeat and one that ended in redemption. Mm. Um, and, you know, I, I, I want to be thinking about all those things and excited about those things, and I can't wholeheartedly get myself into that place. Um I, which is a shame. Mm. It's a real shame. And maybe that will change. I Listen, I don't, uh, I'm not trying to sit up on a high horse here. Like when the, when the ball is kicked and goals fly in and games are entertaining, 
there's every chance that I'll be sucked up into the tournament. Sure. Um, thoroughly sports washed. <laughs> um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, right now, on the day that it starts, I don't have that sort of feeling of yeah. excitement that I customarily That's not gone. I, you know, I think part of it as well, um, I think we have to acknowledge that part of it is when this is being played. That's true. You know, summer, you kind of, you're footloose and fancy free. School's out and, you know, you can stay out till it gets dark and all that kind of stuff. You know what I mean? So the summer is a different dynamic. The fact that, you know, particularly for us, I think as Arsenal fans, it's like, well, this is a very inconvenient World Cup. <laughs> it really is. It could not have been more inconvenient for all the issues. I remember talking, I'm sure we talked about it on the, on the podcast, like the idea that, you know, after Qatar was awarded the World Cup, they went, yeah, we can't really play this one in the summer because, well, everyone will die um, if they're made play football in those kind of temperatures. And we can't really, can't really do that. So, you know, when the winter World Cup was uh, floated, it was like, well, no, you can't do that. But I never thought it would be quite as um, inconvenient for us because of the way our season has gone. That's true. That's true. And, and that's that was maybe the great first instance of moving the goalposts. Um, and I guess the, the alcohol things may be the, the last one of those. And that's one of the things that makes you lose your faith in <laughs> the organisation and the structure that, you know, certain commitments or things that you think are kind of agreed or, sure. or given uh, then change. Um, but hey-ho... Uh, I will still be watching a good deal of the football, um, as we said last week. Yeah. Well, England playing tomorrow. Ben White hopefully will get picked because otherwise he'll have to watch the game. And uh, <laughs> that's basically the last thing he wants. Yeah. Yeah. You, <laughs> yeah. Better, better be playing, better playing with Harry Maguire than having to watch Harry Maguire, I suspect. Or playing instead of Harry Maguire. How about that? Yeah, well, that, that's yeah. another option. All right. I think we do have some questions about the World Cup in general, though, and, and football okay. and, and bits and bobs. So we'll take a little break here. Uh, we'll come back with those questions and more in part two right after this. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 
Welcome back to the Arsecast Extra. This is part two of the show where we answer questions that you sent to us on Twitter, at GunnarBlog and at Arsblog, and also on the Arsblog Discord chat server, which you get access to if you are an Arsblog member on Patreon. How long are we going to have uh, Twitter, do you think? There's all these reports that it's about to, you know, die a, a death. Yeah. I don't know if it will die a, a sudden death, but I think it might... Um, Burst into flames like a Tesla? Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, crash like a test rocket. Yeah. I don't know. We will stay on there as long as we can anyway, because that's... Yeah. Uh, For that's, the community, guys. Well, that's exactly it. I mean, actually, that's it, you know. I think a lot of people... You know, have, de- have developed or built or found themselves part of communities on Twitter, which are really important to them, you know, mm. for all the the other side of what Twitter gives you. And there's a lot of lot of it that isn't great. I know there are loads of people who will miss the communities that they're in, whether it's football or dogs or whatever it might be. You know, they exist and they're happy places for people for the most part, because they, they don't deal with any of the contentious stuff that exists on on twitter so hopefully hopefully it will um it will continue in one form yeah. or another and right. if it does go down we will fight we'll build some sort of big arsenal life raft um, to, <laughs> to keep the community alive a digital life raft yes exactly all right i'll let you go first on the questions oh thank you you're very welcome very much I am speaking slowly So get there. <laughs> I used to do those um, uh, voice things for, you know, the premium phone lines. Yeah. Thank you for calling the James hotline. <laughs> you could win a prize of 10,000 pounds <laughs> by answering just one question. Before we do the, the, honestly, it was crazy. They made you speak so slowly for those things. <laughs> well, this is a question along the lines of something <laughs> we were discussing in part one. So it's a nice little segue. Okay. Mark, who's at Folly Nui on Twitter for now, says, looking at the rest of the season, what kind of chances and minutes do you foresee Arteta giving to academy players? And are there any names in particular who would be most likely? The Nwaneri debut feels more and more like an outlier moment as we go on. I think that is true. I think it I is agree. an outlier moment. I think it was, uh, uh, you know, whatever the circumstances were that made that happen and brought that about, I think it was, you know, a very short little uh, perfect storm for Nguyenary and, um, you know. But on the other question, I don't foresee a lot of minutes for academy players unless we have some like really, really significant problems, significant injury problems. But it's worth remembering as well that we did have, at the end of last season, we had a load of academy players on the bench for like the last two, three months of the season, didn't we? Mm -hmm. Like if you go back and have a look at some of the benches for the games, you've got like um, Charlie Patino, Zach Swanson, um, Omari Hutchinson was on the bench a few times, wasn't he? Uh, Micah Beareth. You know, players like that got onto the bench, but they were there basically just to make up the numbers so you could uh, submit a full squad. Um, 
I mean, that's something that we didn't really mention when talking about pathways for young players. And I do think it is significant is the change in the substitutes rule. You know, teams named nine subs now. They can make five. Uh, You know, even if you look at Man City, they'll regularly have a couple of academy players on the bench, people like Cole Palmer, Rico Lewis, and they've been featuring for them Mm. here and there. Um, That does make it a bit more plausible for an academy player to, you know, make the step. Um, But I don't really look at the current group of academy players and see too many who I think are going to get minutes, especially with Arsenal having quite as much at stake at stake as they do in the second half. Yeah. And like you said, the, you know, players who are maybe closest to a breakthrough or potential breakthrough are the ones out on loan. So Charlie Patino at at Blackpool doing very well. Uh, Brooke Norton Cuffey, you mentioned as well. You know, there isn't quite the the same generation that came through the Willock and Ketty and Nelson, Saka, Smith Rowe generation coming through at this moment in time. No, and there are there are other good players. I mean, uh, you know, there was uh, there's been a relative degree of excitement in the academy about uh, Salah Adin at certain points in time. Mm. Beerith, you mentioned Omar Akik. Uh, you know, these are all prospects, guys who would have a chance of you know making a breakthrough at, at Premier League level. I think in in terms of the talent, anyway. Um, I just think yeah, it's very difficult to see how and where that happens in the squad. Of course, you know, injuries can always present somebody with an opportunity. Um, I'm, I'm looking now at sort of who's still with the squad that you think, well, that they've got a chance. I mean, mm. it is it is hard to pick people out. You know, there are really promising players there. But are they, are they ready? Yeah, exactly. I mean, Lino Sousa, for example, has been doing really well at left back since he came in from... West Brom, I believe, um, but he's still 17 years old, and he's got um, Kieran Tierney and Alexander. And Kieran Tierney can't get a game. Yeah, you know. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah, I, I, I foresee very little academy involvement. I have to say. Yeah, I, I, likewise. Okay, this one was from the Discord. It comes from Mary had a little Ramsdale, which I like. So goodly morning, gents. Option one. Gabriel Jesus scores three goals in the group stage, but Brazil don't qualify for the knockouts. He's back with Arsenal early, but disappointed. Option two, Brazil win the World Cup. Jesus doesn't play much and fails to score. He is back with Arsenal late with mixed emotions. Option three, Brazil win the World Cup. Jesus plays every match and wins the golden boot. He is back with Arsenal late, delighted, but knackered. Which option do you choose? That's really tricky, I think. Um... I think it's obvious. Do you think option... Well, my gut is actually option one. Right. What's What's your gut? What's the obvious right answer? I think three. Win the World Cup. Win the World Cup. Do you feel tired when you're delighted? No, you don't really. I think, I think from a, you know, if you're thinking about the player's outlook on this and what's the best thing for the player in terms of his own ambition, his own career and everything else, surely Brazil winning the World Cup and he plays a lot and scores lots of goals is 
the way to go for him. Like, I get it from a different perspective. If you just want uh, fresh and ready Gabriel Jesus back, you know, maybe option one is the best one or option two. But I think from the player's perspective, it's got to be option three. The only thing that worries me about option three is I remember, I think it was both Ozil and Mertzsacker spoke about this, about how when you win the World Cup as a player, it's so the summit of your ambitions, you know, in some ways it's been your lifelong dream that there is a period following that which requires some recalibration, some readaptation to refocus. I mean, I think, you know, there's probably a dissertation to be written on did Mesut Ozil ever uh, quite achieve that? Um, yeah, it was Emil A239 on the Discord made that point as well. He said, um, considering Germany's win at 2014 drained Ozil and to a lesser extent Mertesacker of their footballing hunger, not so much their physical um, powers, but their, their sort of, like, I guess it's like having a really, really delicious meal. And do you want dessert after that? Maybe not. Yeah, I, I think when you get to the top, staying there is the hardest thing. And um, I'm not doubting Gabriel's capacity to do that. If I had a purely Arsenal hat on, I think there is some merit in option one. I, I, I think option two is out, like him going there, not playing any minutes, not scoring any goals, but going all the way to the final. I think that's sort of the worst of both worlds in some respects. Yeah, I, like, would, I would agree. I think... I'd love him to get some game time and goals in this tournament because he needs that, I think, for his confidence and he needs it to get the monkey off his back. You know, he had a difficult time at the last World Cup and I know he'll be desperate to put that straight. Um, But then selfishly, sorry, any Brazilian listeners, uh, you know, him making a really positive contribution, but the team ultimately falling short and meaning he gets to come back and rest and recuperate, I think might be... Mm the best um as it happens i quite fancy brazil in this tournament not particularly original thought i believe they are the bookmakers favorites but yeah i think they've got a very good chance of they, going they, very deep they do have a significant array of attacking talent that is for sure <laughs> just um, a bit just a bit okay um let me just follow that up then with one from speckled jim who says is there a player whose form slash rhythm you're worried about post world cup both those going and those staying Player whose form or rhythm I'm worried about. Mm. Um, whew. No, I'm not especially, and that just probably means that I'm, you know, everything's rosy at the club right now, so I'm spending more time focusing on the potential positives than the possible mm. negatives, which isn't very Arsenal of me. Um you know, really, I should be fretting and worrying. Thinking about, uh, you know, what variety and um, yeah. kinds of injuries that we've never heard of before. It's exotic disease they might <laughs> acquire. Um, yeah, I, not especially, no. Is there anyone that you're worried about? Maybe Saka. Okay. But just from a sort of general perspective, because, you know, he went through a lot at the last tournament. And... Yeah, I kind of hope he comes through this one in a positive way, you know? Um, yeah, that would be nice. I, I mean, don't necessarily fancy England to go all the way. Maybe these are famous last words, and I apologize to any staunch England fans, but I think there are teams I would put ahead of England as potential winners for this World Cup. But I hope from his perspective, he has a, a positive World Cup. 
Yeah, I think he's shown great resilience uh, in the wake of the Euros. And Aaron Ramsdale was asked about this in one one of the England press conferences and spoke quite interestingly about something I hadn't really thought really, but, you know, Saka sort of having so much pressure at Arsenal in the past 12 months, you Mm. know, certainly last season. And I think he even said that Saka felt a lot of guilt when the team didn't make the top four because yeah. he felt like he hadn't been able to deliver in that final period of the season, which, you know, it's kind of extraordinary for such a young man to have that degree of responsibility on him. Um, I think it would be really great if he could come away from this tournament uh, with a better feeling. Sure. But I don't doubt his resilience to cope no, with whatever. That's, yeah, I, I should have made that point too. It's not about... Um any doubt in him or his character or his, you know, it's just, it's, um, there's a lot put on the shoulders of some of these guys. And um, I mean, the, the player I'm thinking about the most, and I wouldn't say it's worried, but the player I'm thinking about the most in this break isn't at the World Cup and it's Emil Smith-Rowe. Well, he did talk, uh, I don't, I'm sure you've seen the quotes. He mm. was at the, um, the Abu Dhabi Grand Prix and he was collared by Sky Sports. And he was asked when he might be back. He said, hopefully by the first game after the World Cup. I'm out here doing rehab. Today was my day off. I'm back training tomorrow. I'm back on the pitch and stuff. So it's going well. So having had no rhythm to lose, really, in the first half of the season because he's been injured, I I do think that his return is quite significant. Yeah, he almost feels like a kind of wild card at this point in time. Um, Is there a phrase that we could use? Is there a... An acronym, perhaps? I'd say it's kind of um, similar to a novel recruitment. (laughs) It's catchy. Stenner. Similar to a novel acquisition. There we go. (laughs) Um, And, uh, yeah, I think I'm just really curious to see how he fares. You know, I, I mean how much interest there's going to be in the Arsenal's friendlies out in Dubai, I don't know. But like, if there's a reason to watch those games, it's to see what sort of shape Emil Smith rose in, mm. how sharp he looks, what contribution can he make in the second half of the season. Um, but I'd say I'm more excited about that than worried. There is a bit of worry just because he's, you know, unfortunately he does have a history of protracted absences from the first team or from any football mm. Um, he's had another one of those recently. Comebacks are always cagey times where you can have setbacks in the midst of those comebacks. Um, is he going to be able to stay healthy? And is he looking sharp? Is he still explosive? Mm. You know, has he got that sprint? I don't know. I think he's the really, really interesting player during this break. And then I guess maybe if I had to say one more, Fabio Vieira, because famously he sort of didn't have a pre-season he was with Arsenal in the States but didn't get on the pitch um and he's had a few months sort of trying to acclimatize to England and Arsenal but you know been sort of hit and miss and had opportunities here and there um I don't think many people doubt that the talent but this is a kind of pre-season for him Mm. um and again i'm hoping could be really beneficial yeah it's um it is going to be fascinating to see how how they go i mean it's difficult to to sort of predict things but wiseman.ryan on the discord said which arsenal player do you think will have the most impactful world cup yeah really good question um 
Hmm. I've got two. Okay. And slightly surprising. Ooh. <laughs> Surprise me then. So I think in this country, I think I'm backing Ben White to have a sort of breakthrough tournament because I think he's got a very good chance of starting the tournament with Carl Walker not ready. Um, and I think I think Southgate will go with the back three. And I think Ben White, I mean, he basically plays that position anyway on the right of a back three mm. for Arsenal. And it wouldn't surprise me if he does so well that he stays in the team as long as England are in the competition. Okay. Um, I would I would agree with that. If he gets yeah. the chance, I think we've seen this season that Ben White is a is a fantastic player and yeah, like you if he got the chance and played well, why should he come out of the team? And I'm you know, in the context of the tournament it might not be a big story, but in the context of England and the context of Arsenal, mm. it, it could well be. Um other than that, this is really left field, but I just have a sneaky feeling that uh, Gabriel Martinelli will have a moment in this World Cup, a big moment. I was literally going to say the same thing to you. Really? Like, I don't see him starting, but I feel no. like he's the kind of player who feels ready for whatever chance he's given, even if it's very short and even if it's very fleeting. Uh, I, he has, I just, a, he has a history gotta... of stepping up. You know, when yeah, yeah. required. Um, he's sort of always done it. And I kind of feel, you know, he did it as a teenager playing first team football in Brazil. He did it arriving at Arsenal as an 18-year-old and playing European football. He's made an impact on the Brazilian national scene already via the Olympics. I, I, I think I can just see him coming on in extra mm. time of a game and leaving a mark on the tournament. Mm. Thumping header. At sure. Some point, yeah. I know that it might seem implausible given how many attacking options they have, but the reports I've heard from Brazil that I've sort of kept tabs on here and there are that he's looked sharp and been heavily involved in training and sure. done lots of work on the left wing. Um, I don't think he'll start games, but he's an ideal substitute in some ways. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so they're, the, they're the ones I'm really thinking about. I mean, listen, there are other players who play more minutes than Martinelli, certainly, you know, likes of Shaka and uh, Partey but, and Bukai Saka, potentially. But they're just the ones I've got a sneaky feeling for. He's not going to play Saka left back, is he, or left wing back? I wouldn't rule that out. I wouldn't rule that out. I don't know what he's going to do, to be honest, but I do think he's going to go with a back three. I imagine it'll be Luke Shaw left wing back, but it wouldn't surprise me if Saka spends some time in that position. Mm. Okay. Yeah. Uh, here is a question. So, uh, let's have this one. Are we, okay, yeah, I like this. Duran on the Discord. Goodly morning, gents. By the way, did you see the guy with the goodly evening sign? Yeah. Um, the darts, apparently. Yeah, it was tweeted to us by Jonathan Wade, who's at Jonathan Wade who said, who is this at the darts? And there's a guy holding up a sign saying, goodly evening, hashtag number one. I mean, love it. It's good. Let's, Could be uh, completely random. Who knows? But surely not. Surely not. 
could just be a guy who saw that those mugs are selling really well on Redbubble and thought, <laughs> I need to capitalize on this social movement. That's what is the opposite of goodly morning? I know. Anyway. Uh, He's just advertising our forthcoming uh, dinnerware. Um, <laughs> yeah, I did like that picture that you, you tweeted. The, that was very good, yeah. yeah. Uh, Duran on Discord says, Goodly morning, gents. My question is regarding the future signings. I agree with the opinion we should definitely strengthen January. However, with the team being so well drilled playing Arteta's football with automatisms and specific roles for each position, do we worry that new signings will find it harder than ever to embed and make an instant impact? Or do you think a higher calibre of player would be able to slot right in? I think that's the answer to the question. I think a player who is good and experienced and I don't mean like a grizzled veteran like like Gabriel Jesus experienced exactly you know who understands the game um, who has played maybe at a high level or maybe is ready to take the step up I mean I think what we we've talked a lot about the kind of players that we've signed and the um, the work that's gone into identifying them as players and as people right as characters I think there is maybe something we don't discuss hugely is because it's difficult to know. It's not like, it, you know, uh, this player comes with tw uh, 92 out of 100 in football intelligence. But I think we've signed intelligent players and intelligent players can learn quickly, mm. even if it's a new system or even if it's, you know, I mean, look, it's football. I know it's more complicated than it was, but how complicated can it be? Coach tells you to do this, in this, do this, blah, blah. You know, so I think it is about the experience and quality of the player. I would imagine that any recruitment that we do is going to take that into consideration. Like, how difficult is it to to slot into this team and, and you know, do the job that, you know, X player does or Y player does? If you're playing in instead of this guy, you know, what what do I need to do? What do I need to bring to the team, you know, in order to offset that, you know? Mm -hmm. So I wouldn't worry too much about that because I feel like they'll have done their due diligence on on the players that they bring in. Like, they, they're not going to look at a guy and go, yep, there's a really talented player, and then he arrives and they discover he's fucking dumb as a box of rocks. You know, that's not going to happen. Yes, I think that's fair. I do think there is an interesting point about this, the, the distinction between our first 11 and how well drilled and how um, suited to the system they mm. all appear, and that some of those roles, when you swap the players out, aren't quite replicable. Um, and is that a consequence of like player characteristics or is it just, uh, I don't, I don't know. I, I see the point of like, if you buy a winger, you know, can they do the job that Saka does immediately and hit the ground running? Is there an acclimatization period? Mm. But, but one thing I would say is that when we have bought players by and large, they have been bought with the system in mind. You know, I remember thinking back to Thomas Partey signing for the club and, I remember writing and reporting at the time that, you know, he, they see him as someone who can be the whole holding midfielder, the sole pivot at the base of the midfield. And we didn't actually see that for quite a long time. It was like 
12 to 18 months or something like that before we really adopted that shape and gave him that responsibility. Uh, a lot of the time he had Granit Xhaka in there next to him, but now you see it makes sense. And similarly, you look at right back. You know, Arsenal looked at so many different options at right back and ultimately, you know, Arteta was quite firm that he wanted Tommy Asu because mm. he had that idea of this is how I want the team to play and he is the player uh, most suited to facilitating that. And I think if we make signings in January, you know, the same, to borrow Arteta's phrase, the same kind of specificity will be in play. And and you sometimes if you're a big team and you've got a certain style, you will take a bit of a punt on like a maverick talent. So like I think of Riyad Mahrez going to Man City, for example, or maybe even Darwin Nunes mm. at Liverpool. You know, they're not players who seem to be an obvious fit or uh, uh, for for the style of play, but the sort of talent potential is so great that you are prepared to take that risk and bring them in and hone them. I just wonder if, you know, will Arsenal do that in January or will they look for someone who is maybe, as you suggest, more ready-made, more of an automatic fit, just because if they are going to contribute in the second half of the season, they may need to hit the ground running. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, we did have a, another question on that, so I might as well just do it very quickly if I can find it. It comes from Mean Lean, who's at Arsenal Vision, and he said, Morning, gents. We've had a wonderful start to the season, but at present, I don't believe we have the numbers to compete with City for our title. How many starting ad- how many starting quality additions do you think we need uh, to compete over an, uh, an entire campaign? And maybe, you know... Um, that's a slightly more broader question than January, but like, yeah. what would give you the confidence that we could push it all the way to May um, in terms of what we did in January? Hmm. Oh, if we were to focus on January specifically. Yeah. I think um, a central midfield player and a forward of some description would be my requirements. And those are deliberately quite broad. So in an ideal world, I'd like someone who could come in and play, who could have, who could mean that we could lose Thomas Partey or Granit Xhaka without it destabilising the team quite so much. Mm-hmm. And someone who could, um, A, afford... Bukayo Saka and Gabriel Martinelli, a little rest here and there, but B, win games in the final 20 to 30 minutes. Um, Someone who can come off the bench and have an impact in the attacking third. Mm. I think they're, for me, the key pieces. What about you? I think two, two players. If we had two starting quality players... In January, I feel like we could deal with the rigours of Premier League, Europe, still the FA Cup, of course, as well. Um, But I do think those two players need to be guys that can come in and and bring something to the team straight away. Um, And then I feel... Positions in mind? Yeah, central midfield and someone in attack. Hmm. Yeah. I, I do think very slightly the, not very slightly, quite considerably, the return of Smith Rowe, mm. if he can stay fit 
it sort of makes a winger less important. Mm-hmm. And I wonder if maybe another centre forward or another option at striker might be an option. But I that could be me overthinking it. Um, I suspect we're more likely to get a winger than a striker. But if you've got... Yeah, I mean, you're still missing that Saka. Yeah, I mean, the reason I said forward is because I think potentially it could be either, you know, um, yeah. or, or it could be someone who can play both. Um, yeah. But I, if I was to be quite specific, like, I really like the idea. I mean, I just spoke about Martinelli as a brilliant substitute for Brazil. I think he'd be a pretty brilliant substitute for Arsenal, but he's actually a very handy starter right now. Mm. But and I love what Emil Smith Rowe brings to the team, and I think he's gonna he's gonna really help us. And who knows? You know, the way we're playing now, he might even play the odd game in the midfield. If Fabio Vieira's been asked to do it, I can see Emil Smith Rowe being considered for that. Yeah. But I really like the idea of like a flyer, like like someone who is just very direct. So who, you're 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 all on board the Mudrick train. Is that what well, you're saying? Do you know what? Weirdly, <laughs> the player that I, I'm thinking of actually is like prime Theo Walcott. Like someone who's just bloody quick and direct. And I know Theo was very frustrating at times, but he scored and made goals. And mm. I just like the idea that in certain match situations, you've got this player that you can bring on that every fullback is like, Uh oh, oh. yeah. And a tired team yeah. feel like, oh, they just changed gear. And and I think Mudrick honestly really could be that guy from what I've seen, and which, you know, is bits and pieces. But he's played in the Champions League this season and played very, very well. Um, and holy fuck, he's fast. He's fast, he's direct, he can dribble, he can score goals. You know, he is he is someone who you can bring on and or, or start, I mean, and, and mm. would really have, I think, an impact. Um, the, the, the trouble with him, and we know Arsenal, I think if Mohamed Elneny hadn't got injured in the summer, then Arsenal would have made quite a big play to sign Mudrik in the summer transfer window. Last um, summer. Yeah, the one just gone. Yeah. Yeah. Like, with about two weeks to go in the window, all my uh, information was that he was sort of the most prominent name on the list and Arsenal were looking at that position and he was most likely the guy. Um, and I think you probably could have got him at that point in time. You know, Brentford were bidding around thirty million or something like that, and mm. Shakhtar weren't interested. But I think if you'd got to forty or so, you might have had yourself a deal. The trouble now is that he's gone and exploded onto the Champions League scene, and Shakhtar. I mean, I think their owner was quoted in the Athletic as saying they want hundred million. They're using the Anthony fee as a benchmark. Um, so God, cheers. There was that. another That's fucking it. reason to dislike Anthony. <laughs> Jeez. <laughs> Just when you didn't need another. Um, so the price point is obviously the issue here. Um, I mean, yeah, I mean, that is an issue. If that's what they want, I don't think Arsenal are going to are gonna pay that. No, and also, that, you know, that may be a negotiating position. Um, 
I mean, it does feel like a lot of groundwork is being done, you know, sitting down doing an interview with Zinchenko's wife. Would you like to play with Zinchenko? Oh, yeah. I'd love to play with Zinchenko. I mean, yeah, he he unapologetically wants a move um, and is very clear and transparent that Arsenal would be a good option for him. Mm. Um, uh, it, It reminds me in some respects, and maybe it's just because it's sort of, you know, from the a player from the east of us arriving potentially mid-season. But it reminds me a little bit of Arshavin in that he was a player who, you know, caught light on the international stage and there was a lot of talk about. Um, and he was in a little bit of a tussle with his club about whether or not he was going to be allowed to go. Mm. And I think... There's a bit of that with Mudrik where Shakhtar have been pretty reticent to let him go and I don't think we'll make it easy for him, but he's very adamant that he wants out at this point in time. This is his window where he's going to move. Going to be an interesting one to watch and I, I don't think Arsenal will be alone in being, you know, in tracking him and yeah. seeing what might be doable in January. Like he, he's one of the hottest talents in the world right now. Mm. Would be an exciting one. That's for sure. That yeah. For and sure. you do think like, you know, we've got Zinchenko, the little things like that do help. And mm. there's dialogue between the club and the player side, you know, it has been for a while. Yeah. Um, We're going to get like, you know, when he does sign, Mikel Arteta rang me every night. <laughs> read me, read me a I don't poem. know if it's quite got to that point, but certainly like Edu's doing his job, you know. Mm. Um, but again, the, the figures, the figures do worry me a bit. I mean, let's not forget, I think we were right up there in terms of expenditure in the summer, weren't we? Mm. Um, I guess we'll see what's possible and what they can do. But yeah, he, he he's the kind of player that I think could have a real impact. And again, the season people will point to is, apart from our Shavin's arrival, which came in very different circumstances, that was to kind of rescue a season. But 2003-2004, Arsenal were on course to, you know, go and win the league potentially. But mm-hmm. they added Jose Antonio Reyes in January, made a club record signing. Yeah, broke our transfer uh, record that yeah. January. Yeah, and what an impact he had. So we will see. We will see. It's exciting uh, to consider. And hopefully they, they can do something. I think um, the question that we were asked was how many players? I think we both settled on two, have we? To win it, if you want us to win the league. Another six. Six, yeah. seven. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I, I think for us to win it, genuinely, you'd have to be looking at two or three and us, be, and us being fortunate with injuries. Yeah, um, pretty much injury free. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and I'm not saying we have to get two and we must get two. And if we don't get two, it's a disaster. And Because I really do respect the club's process on this. And I think this season shows that um, generally there's been good strategy underpinning our recruitment. Mm-hmm. Um, and if they can't get the right player, like what's the point in going and buying Pepe? Do you know what I mean? Sure, like, sure. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. You know, they've got to get it right. Um, but if they can do those deals, then we'll be in a really strong and position. If, and if they can't, they will feel our wrath. 
Just one question on the sure. eve of the World Cup, or the day of the World Cup. If you could, it's from Rob W on the Discord. If you could wrap just one of our World Cup playing players in magic invisible bubble wrap, which would guarantee they would not pick up an injury at the tournament, who would you choose? And uh, ladies and gentlemen, this we call this the jinxing section of the podcast. <laughs> so when I say Thomas Partey and he sort of uh, goes to ground, uh, holding his exploded hamstring in Ghana's mm. first game. This will be my fault, will it? I guess so. Okay, yeah. well then. Thomas but you Partey. cannot hold Andrew accountable. <laughs> Thomas Partey's hamstrings unfortunately appear to be made of I don't know feta cheese or something. Yeah, they, yeah, yeah. I, I think he's the one because we don't have the cover. That's really yeah. it. You know? and, and honestly, like something I uh, increasingly think is we may never have <laughs> the cover. Like, yeah. you know, people say, well, how are we going to buy a player with party's characteristics to be backup? Increasingly, I'm coming around to the answer that maybe you can't do that. <laughs> like, maybe sometimes when you've got a really, really good player, mm. that's just what happens when you don't have them, you know? Yeah. Um, there aren't many Thomas Partey types. So, yes, I think he'd be my number one pick as well. As much as I always want to protect Bukayo Saka from all the world's ills and would gladly have him perennially in bubble wrap, um, I think in terms of its impact on Arsenal's season, Thomas Partey would be the one. Okay, let's do a couple of quick ones just to finish us off. Um, JCBR says, can we get a fantasy football update? Well, I'm oh. I'm bottom. Like, I'm bottom by a long way. I'm pretty bad, actually, this year. I, You're usually quite good, though. I'm usually quite good. I'm. Let's have a look. My overall rank, uh, I'm 30... I'm th- three millionth in the world <laughs> um, out of 11 million. So, yeah, I'm not doing great. In the Ask Blog League, I'm... 1500th I don't know how many people are in it well I can tell you exactly how many people are in it 2020 because I am 2020 congratulations and in the world my overall rank is 10,852,525 out of 10,906,737 can you just quickly talk us through your team 1 to 11 uh, oh yeah they're all injured players at the moment so at the moment some guy called Stra- Strakosha oh yeah at Fulham is he uh, yeah possibly um, I no, had Brentford. I anyway. had that uh, Dalot Dallow um, he was in the team oh he's done okay yeah but he was injured he missed the last game oh so you have been tweaking it to keep them injured yep. currently uh, uh, Varane uh, Jansen and James, Reese James at the back. Um, <laughs> midfield of Coutinho, Townsend, Cabano, and Smith Rowe. And my two strikers are uh, the two Wolves guys, Jimenez and uh, Kalajic. Oh, yeah. Um, it's not a bad team if any of those players could currently walk. No, they can't. I just go through every week. I just go through, take out about five or six players, <laughs> and then I, then I look at who's got a red triangle beside them, and I pick them. Except... I don't pick Spurs players. Ever. The genius of that is you will be um, losing points for making so many transfers well, as yeah, well. That, yeah, that's it. That's it. It's I've absolutely got, foolproof. I've got to do better because there are still close to 50,000 players worse than me. 
and I'm actively trying, so I'm taking this as a challenge now. So, yeah, um, those guys. Yeah, you've got to. Is your aim to be the worst in the world? Hopefully, by the end of the season. Yeah, hopefully, I've got some way to go though. I've got to, you know, keep training, work hard on the training ground. You know, you never know what can happen in in fantasy football. Um, you know, hopefully, the season will turn out disastrously. That's fingers crossed. That's my. We're all, we're all praying for you. I like this one from. Uh, I think it's Barnsai on the Discord. Let me just double check that. Yeah, Barnsai said, "Can we please start referring to Man City as the poor man's Newcastle?" I tried it on a Man City supporter friend of mine, and he really hated it. So that just made me laugh. It must be weird for City fans. Do you think, like, having been the financial superpower of the Premier League, mm. I wonder if they are a bit ruffled by Newcastle coming along? I'm and sure. I guess, yeah, and I guess Newcastle really threatened to take their spot. You know, their financial potential is absurd. It's, so. Yeah, even more. Like, is there anybody richer than... Saudi Arabia is that possible for like <laughs> another so. an, another nation state or entity to come along and just be even more powerful than Saudi Arabia and it just keeps getting worse and worse until football eats itself okay here's our final one Mark Berland who's at M Berland says what would your penalty shootout lineup be from our current squad so we've got a you know World Cup coming up all that kind of stuff we've got a penalty shootout who are your hello. five hello 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 Oh, I went away then, yeah. but I'm back. Um, did you hear the question? Yes, I did. Penalty shootout lineup. Yeah, so who, who's your, who are your five? Uh, Bakari Saka. Yeah. Uh, Gabriel Martinelli. Okay. Um, hmm... I'm finding this harder than I thought. I think I would have Granite Shaka. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I think I would have Saliba. Ooh. I just think he's so cool. All right. So you've got Saka, Martinelli, Shaka, Saliba, and who's your final one? I know it should be Jesus, but I think I'm going to. I think I'm going to go Ben White. Oh, that's not bad because I have Ben White in mind as well. So what's yours? Saka, mm. Shaka, yeah, Zinchenko, yeah, he'd be good. Martinelli, White. So neither of us picked Jesus. No. Yeah, I don't know what that says. Well, I just think when a striker isn't your penalty taker, it makes you think they must really not fancy them. Yeah, I, I don't think he's got a great penalty record. I think we looked it up before as well, didn't we? Um, yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, Saliba may be a left-field choice, but I just think he's got very good technique and he's very, very composed. Like, you know, in the same way that Ashley Cole was a very effective penalty taker for Arsenal for years, I think he would be decent in a shootout. You reckon Kieran Tierney could do it? Yeah, I reckon he could. Mm. Give it the old sort of psycho celebration afterwards as well. But, <laughs> he'd leather uh, it. I think he'd just leather yeah, it. Yeah, I think in, yeah. he'd go for power. I think, I think I think. Shaka would be pretty good, you know. Like, I imagine if Shaka took pens regularly, mm. um, his record would be decent just because he's got real power, you know, and I think that counts for quite a lot. In yeah, that situation. and he's a goal machine. 
Now and he's obviously got great goal scoring instincts yeah, as well. Yeah, exactly. All right. We had better leave it there. Um, we will be doing some stuff over on Patreon during the World Cup, so you can join us for that. Details to follow during the week, patreon.com forward slash arsblog, which also helps support everything that we do here on the site, from the coverage of the women's game to the youth team and everything else. So if you fancy getting on board, you do get extra content. Everything else, of course, remains free of charge, as it always has done. Um, we will talk to you on Friday with an Arscast as well. Uh, enjoy the World Cup if you're watching. Enjoy the football. Um, if not... Uh, I don't know what to say fair play Um, thank you for listening as always and we'll catch you on the next one bye bye hey it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad high quality fashion without the price tag say hello to Quince I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.